Well, today we're wrapping up our sermon series titled Between Sundays as we're looking at the topic of work. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many had a great work week this past week? And if you're retired, remember, you're still to work. You're still to be, you're still to subdue, right, and rule. How many of you just had a really challenging, stressful work week? Raise your hand. That happens too, right? Well, I hope that you guys took on the challenge that I gave to you last Sunday. You may recall that uh, we were looking at our motivations for our work and what drives us to work. And we talked about how the gospel should change and transform our motivations. It should cause us to work, to express gratitude to God, to reflect God's image and glory into the world, to love our neighbor, and to be a foretaste of God's promised future when we will work on the renewed earth for his glory and for his praise and completely uh, sinless ways. And I challenge you to, before you went into your work, to review these motivations. And then I encourage you at the end of your work day to assess, well, how did you do at work? Were you motivated by these, these things? I hope you took on the challenge. What we're going to do today is we're going to add to this list of how God his gospel should transform our work. So last week we talked about motivations. Here's what we're going to cover this week. The gospel should transform our work attitude, the decisions we make at work, how we work, how we choose our work, and how we relate to our coworkers. So let me pray. Pray with me, and then we'll jump right in. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that we are new creatures in you. We are thankful that we are who you say we are. We are not what our mind likes to tell us and the voices in our head like to tell us. How we're not right, how we're never gonna, we're never going to be good enough, how we're just... There's no hope for, my, for our situations and for the, the places we find ourselves in. Um, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you see us in a righteous way because through faith we are connected to Christ and we're covered in his righteousness. Thank you that we are so loved by you. And Lord, we have been talking about that one way we respond to that love is that we work out of gratitude for you. We work to love you. We work to love our neighbor, and that's loving you too because it's following your second greatest command. Lord, I pray that as we consider how the gospel should transform our work, that you would transform us in the process so that we would be such a beacon of light in a dark world, especially in our places of work. 
We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the gospel transforms our work attitude. So this intentionally personal and this wonderfully global gospel that we talked about last week tells us this amazing story of God creating the entire universe. He's the sustainer of it. And not just the Milky Way galaxy that we inhabit, but he is the creator and sustainer of everything everywhere, including the 100 to 200 billion galaxies that scientists believe exist. This great, great, almighty, all-powerful Jesus has humbled himself. And this should transform our work attitude. Let me explain how so. So Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the galaxies, right? He becomes, and this is what we're going to be celebrating this Christmas season. He becomes an embryo in this, inside a nervous teenage woman from the middle of nowhere. And then he becomes a baby that could not feed himself, nor could he change himself. He grew to be a man that worked as a carpenter, only he limited himself to only being in one place at one time. He grew tired and hungry. And then his very best friends deserted him. And his people deserted him. And then he was treated as the worst of criminals when he was beaten and tortured and then crucified. What humility! You know, Jesus was not self-absorbed. He was not self-occupied. He wasn't about his own personal agenda. His personal agenda was God the Father's agenda. He wasn't all about his rights, his glory. He was laser-focused on pleasing his Father and loving and serving us. That is the Jesus that we sing about and that we proclaim on Sunday mornings. What a God. And the Apostle Paul, he says this very same mindset that Christ had, where it was so other-centered, needs to be your mindset. Paul writes this in Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verses 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. You see, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking about yourself less. It's not only looking to your own interest, and notice Paul doesn't say stop doing this, but it's also caring for others with the same intensity by which you care for yourself. Esteem others as worthy of your help and encouragement. Esteem others as worthy of your listening ear. Esteem others as worthy of your money. Don't walk around with this attitude that everybody owes you, but walk around with this attitude that you owe everybody. Why? Because the one that owed you 
absolutely nothing at all and who we owed literally everything to, our very existence, our breath, our very sustenance gave us everything. Forgiveness, acceptance, eternal life, this amazing inheritance of the new world that we will inhabit. We are not worthy, and yet God counted us worthy. He came, the the creator and sustainer of the universe, he came to us with the mindset that he owed us everything. Won't you have the same mindset to the people that are around you? Live with the mindset that people owe you nothing but that you owe them. Count them worthy despite their unworthiness. Treat others this way because this attitude is the very attitude of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, at work tomorrow, have this attitude of humility. Don't look down your nose at people. Don't just constantly be frustrated with people. And if they just did things the right way, which really means your way, then things would be better. Don't walk around all puffed up. If you do good work, don't take credit for it. Because here's the reality. Not taking credit for it is the humble thing to do, but it's also the true thing to do. Let me tell you why. You're not in control of your success as much as you think you are. Sure, you've worked hard, but what have you worked hard with? The body God gave you, the intellect God gave you, the genetics God gave you, the opportunities God gave you, the parents God gave you, the connections God gave you, the bringing God gave you, the education God gave you. You didn't choose the country you were born in. You didn't choose the century you were born in. You didn't choose the family you were born into. You didn't choose the social class you were born into. All the good in your life, all your success in your work, your ability to achieve and to accomplish and produce is all an amazing gift from the giver of all gifts, all good gifts, and that is God himself, that is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, and what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Look, the gospel should radically transform our work attitude. It just should. We should have this humble mindset that counts others worthy. Despite their unworthiness, we're looking to love them with the same intensity by which we love ourselves. We're looking at all the success in our job as a gracious gift from God that we can't take credit for. Can you imagine if you at your place of work had people that had this type of humility? It would utterly transform an organization. I mentioned him before, but Patrick Lencioni, this guy who's worked in his consulting firm, has worked with organizations of all sizes all over the world. 
He, he has written a book, The Ideal Team Player. You may have heard me mention this before. He lists in this book the three virtues that make the ideal team player. The first is people that have people smarts make the ideal team player. They have a high emotional intelligence. If you don't know what that is, read about it. The second virtue he mentions is that they're hungry, right? They have a passion to do well, to, to push the organization forward. And guess what the third thing is? They're humble. This is what he writes. The humble team player lacks excessive ego or concerns about status. Humble people are quick to point out the contributions of others and slow to seek attention for their own. They share credit, emphasize team over self, and define success collectively rather than individually. You see, the, the gospel is truly the only power that can transform a human heart into this kind of humility. The gospel transforms our work attitude. The gospel transforms the decisions we make at work. Second takeaway this morning. How does the gospel transform the decisions we make at work? Well, let me tell you how. First of all, the gospel gives a new set of values for us to filter all of our work decisions through. God's values are very different than the world's values. Very different. Let me explain some of God's values and the world's values, and surely you will see the, the difference. And envision that if we operated by God's values, how that would also radically transform any organization, any company, any business. The world says repay evil with evil. If someone throws you under the bus, if somebody gossips about you, then you hurt them back and you, by doing the same. God says, repay evil with good. The world says, hate your enemies. You know, those people who just make work a miserable place, learn to not like them, despise them. God says, love your enemies. The world says, telling white lies is something you just have to do. Do whatever it takes, you know, to make yourself look better than what you really are. God says, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. The world says, hey, there's no need to forgive those who hurt you. Keep that wall up inside your heart. It'll do you good. Protect yourself. God says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The world says, sometimes you got to use people to get ahead. God says, seek justice and correct oppression. The world says, pay special attention to the rich, the powerful, and the beautiful. We love doing that. Look at the magazines. I keep waiting to see an unattractive person on one of the magazines that are in the aisles at the stores, and you never do. God says, pay special attention to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. The world says, the greatest among you are the ones who have people serving them. 
God says the greatest among you are the ones who serve. God says it is best to give. The world says it's best to receive. The world says that certain races or people groups are superior to others. God says that all people groups are equally valuable to him. The chauvinistic workplace says the male is better than the female. God says, no, they're both equally valuable in my sight. The world says, treat women as sex objects. Lust after them. Check them out. God says, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery within his heart. The world says, point out the flaws of other people. Be quick to point out the flaws of your coworkers. God says, remove the big old plank from your eye. This is the Shane Cockrell translation. The big old plank from your eye so that you can remove the small speck out of your neighbor's eye, your coworker's eye. The world says, when you do good, post it on Facebook. Put it on Twitter. Put it on Instagram. <laughs> Who was I talking to about this? I, I don't know. I am still waiting for somebody to show their family in a photograph when they just rolled out of bed on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Nobody's doing it. We should be the first. God says when you do a charitable deed to do it in secret. The world says promote yourself. God says promote others. The world says avoid conflict or lash out. God says speak the truth in love and be reconciled. The world says it's okay to break a commitment. God says let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. And this is just a sampling of the values that God holds and how they are so counter-cultural. And that's why Jesus' teaching was revolutionary. And it's still revolutionary. You see, if we have these values by which to filter our work decisions through, we are going to be making wise, ethical decisions that benefit our company, that benefit our coworkers, and that benefit our customers. Do you know what God values? Are you constantly reminding yourself of what God values? Are you bringing God's values to bear on your work? Second, let's consider the new power that that gospel gives us to make decisions by, because we have a new set of value, values for making decisions at work, and we also have a new power the gospel gives us a new power. Just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus, he told his disciples he must go away. And this, of course, made his disciples extremely sad and depressed. But Jesus told them it would actually be the best thing for him. And here's the reason why Jesus knew that when he went away to his father, after his resurrection, through his ascension, that then he could then pour out the Holy Spirit upon his followers. 
and that Holy Spirit would live inside of them. John 16, 12 through 15 says, I still, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Here's the thing. Here's a quote I read this, this past week. According to the Bible, wisdom is more than just obeying God's ethical norms. Check this out. It is knowing the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations in which the moral rules or God's values don't provide the clear answer. There is no biblical law that tells you what job to take, where to live, whom to marry, whom to befriend, whether or not to go back to school, when to speak or hold your peace, whether to make the deal or walk away, yet the wrong decision can blow up your life. We need God's Spirit to help us make decisions in our Christian faith. We also, I didn't put this in here, we need Christian community to help us make wise decisions in the workplace. The Holy Spirit is, as Ephesians 1 tells us, the spirit of wisdom and power. It nudges us, it prompts us, it redirects us. And if we're going to use our time, our money, and our talents, and our relationships in the best, most strategic way, including our work, then we've got to be leaning into the Spirit. We've got to have these times where we're abiding with Christ because apart from him, we can bear no spiritual fruit. Do you ask God's Spirit to direct your work day and help you make decisions? Do you pray before meetings and ask for God's guidance? Do you pray before you make decisions at work? Do you ask God to empower you to make you more fruitful? Do you pray for your employer? Do you pray for your boss, whether you like him or her or not? And if you don't like them, the first step in loving your enemies is praying for your enemies, by the way. Because it has a way of starting to just soften your cold-hearted heart towards the person. It's, it's, it's amazing. Do you pray for your employees if you're a manager or a supervisor or, or a boss? Do you pray for your coworkers? The gospel transforms our work attitude. It gives us a new power by which and a new set of values by which to make decisions in our work. And number three, the gospel transforms how we work. The good news about Jesus demonstrates so fully that God is both sovereign and he is both full of love. Ephesians 1, 7 through 12 says this, check out the emphasis on God's sovereignty that he controls all things everywhere. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, speaking of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, which means at just the right time, he might gather together and one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his counsel and will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. God always knew rebellion would come into his world. God always knew that he would choose the nation of Israel and they would rebel against him. He always knew he would have to send his son to redeem the world. None of this caught him by surprise. God made all sorts of promises through the prophets. We're going to be checking that out uh, this Christmas season. And then he fulfilled them all. And then he sent his son to die this crazy death by which he took the ugliest thing that has ever happened in the history of the world and leveraged it and used it uh, according to his foreknowledge and the counsel of his will for our redemption. This is all to say God is in control. The gospel magnifies this. It also magnifies this, though, too, that he has a crazy amount of love for us that he has that he ha ascribes immense value to us that he has chosen to buy us back from sin and death at great cost to himself he has chosen to adopt us into his family he has chosen to make us a son or a daughter and an heir he's promised to love us with such an intensity that nothing will be able to separate us from his love. So how does this knowledge that God is this all-powerful, all-wise, completely in control God of the universe, and yet he has freely chosen love and accept us? How should this transformer work? Let me give you two brief things here. First, as Jesus followers, we work by abandoning outcomes. People in all lines of work, they have end results, right, that they're shooting for. They have end goals that they're shooting for. The, the salesman has certain sales goals that he desires to hit. The school teacher has certain test results that he or she desires their students to attain. The coach has a certain amount of wins they're shooting for. The carpenter has a certain amount of business they're hoping to drum up in this new year. The factory worker has a particular amount of products that he has to produce in the last quarter of this year. The regional manager wants to get the, you know, the, the higher position in his corporate structure. The homeschooling mom has this aim that through the, by the end of the school year, their child will be able to read some very basic books. You see, the worker who is rooted in the gospel, the, 
this, this amazing story of this sovereign God who is love and how we're so freely chosen and accepted in him because of what Christ, do, uh, Christ has done for us. The person who is so rooted in that, they are able to work in a light way. They're able to work in a restful, peaceful way because they know that, sure, they have a part to play in the outcomes at work, but it is such a small part, and God's part is huge. He is ultimately in control of them. And look, if they don't reach their goals at work, yeah, sure, they're going to be discouraged, but they're not crushed, right? They're not thrown into a whirlwind of despair because they're able to trust that God has something better. And so the person that's been transformed by the gospel holds all their aspirations loosely. This leads to so much less stress in their work and so much more joy. Are you working in this easy yoke of Jesus? Also, the person who has this gospel, this, this intensely personal yet wonderfully global gospel, so rooted in their hearts, they're able to rest from their work. They're able to take a Sabbath day. As Jesus followers, we work hard but we also remember to rest. Remember when God, he created the world, he did all his work in, in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And he set this design up for humans to follow. Look, when we ignore God's design, it always leads to harmful, destructive results. When we don't mimic God's design to, of work and rest, it leads to all sorts of problems. Look, when the nation of Israel, when they were slaves in Egypt and they were, God redeemed them and rescued them, and when they were slaves, they weren't able to live out this rhythm of work and rest that God made for the universe. When he rescued them, he reinstated this rhythm of work and rest that includes one day off a week. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, God, speaking to the people of Israel, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Do you hear what this verse is saying? Slaves don't get to rest. Slaves don't get to rest. They have to toil, they have to strive, they have to work incessantly. But you are no longer a slave. So quit acting like a slave. Take one day a week off to rest. Isn't that awesome that God is a God who wants us to take vacation? And if you can't take a day off a week to rest, just to pray and play with God, or if you try to, but your mind is still at work, I believe God wants you to consider whether or not you are a slave to your work. Has work enslaved you? Why are you working so hard anyways? What's the work underneath the work? Are you overworking? 
revealing that you're trying to find significance and satisfaction and security or status or power or success or money through your work. That you're trying to find what only God can provide in being busy all the time. You see, keeping a Sabbath is a declaration of freedom and trust. In terms of freedom, when we take a day off, we're saying, hey, I am free from this striving and toiling that characterizes our country. I'm I'm free of that. I'm accepted by God. I'm secure in God. I'm satisfied in God. I am significant in God. I don't need to toil and to uh, to spend all the time to prove myself or make a name for myself. Observing the Sabbath is also a declaration of trust. It's a huge declaration of trust. That work, what you're saying is, I trust God that he will take care of what I can't get to. That if I remove my hands from the plow, things aren't going to all fall apart. God, I trust you enough to take a day of rest. You don't need me, God. Think about this. You spend a third of your life sleeping. Do you think God needs you to run the universe? Nope. I think he's got it. I'll just mention these last two points. I won't go into them in detail, but they're good. So think about them. The fourth is this. The gospel should transform how you choose your work. If there are high school and college kids here, think about this. And if you're working right now, think about this. You should not choose your career based on what's going to give you power or what's going to bring you status or what's going to be most, you know, financially lucrative. If God's design for work is that we are to work to reflect his glory and we are to work to love our neighbor, it's the prime way we do both of these things, then what you need to do is prayerfully consider how has God shaped me? What are my spiritual gifts? What are my heart passions? What are my abilities? What's my personality? What's my life experiences? And what field of work, given all that, will allow me to reflect God's glory the most and love my neighbor the most? That's how you make a decision based on you know, where you're going to work. And if you're working right now and you're miserable in your job, it very well could be that you are not working in a place that fits what, how God has designed you. And if there's a way to get out of that work, get out of it. Here's another thing, though. you got to be careful because a lot of times, God, for you to be happy, your work doesn't need to change. You need to change. Your heart needs to change. Because no matter where you go and work, you're not going to be happy. Right? Fifth point. The gospel transforms how we relate to our coworkers. Work in itself glorifies God. That's how he created us to reflect him. But I want to say this. You must look for opportunities to share the gospel message with your coworkers. 
You must look for opportunities to speak about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You must look for the opportunities for God, uh, for you to talk about how the gospel transforms your work. Let's not forget that. The gospel transforms our work. It transforms our work attitude, the decisions we make at work, how we work, how we choose our work, how we relate to our coworkers. Christians, you people in this room, should be the best workers at your place of employment. You guys should be phenomenal at what you do. You guys should just be fantastic, and I'm encouraging you to do that. You should be the humblest, wisest, most joyful, and relaxed workers around. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you call us to partner with you in your filling and subduing and ruling over the earth for your glory. What a privilege, what a responsibility. Lord, we understand that in order for us to do that in a way that, really for that to accomplish, we need your Holy Spirit's work to, to powerfully transform our hearts so that we go about our work with the right attitude, the right perspective, so that we love the people in our path and that we work with and that we serve our customers and so we would do it all just full of grace and truth and love and justice and mercy. Lord, I pray that you would empower each person here to know that their work matters, even if they're digging ditches for a career, that work matters to you. I pray that they wouldn't see their work as insignificant, but that they would seek to be the best worker that they can for your glory and to love their neighbor. And I also pray, too, if there are people in this room that are really struggling right now with their place of employment, Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity to them in regards to whether they need to get out of it or whether you just really need to deal with their hearts or whether it's a mix of both. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.